As we continue our geographical series, we, we now shift from the low and the dark caves into the majesty, the grandeur, and the high and lofty mountains. Biblically speaking, and hopefully we learned this over the past few weeks, that the caves are the places of self-discovery. We truly know who we are in places that are low, in places of crises. But mountains, on the other hand, are places of discovery of God, who he is and what his will is. Now, let me just say that there are over 500 mountains mentioned in the Bible. So this is going to be a very, very long series. Okay, I'm just joking. All right. So, but we are going to go ahead and look at the most significant mountains that are talked about in Scripture. And today we're going to scale up the mountain called Moriah. It is actually the second mountain mentioned in the book of Genesis. The first being Mount Ararat. Who remembers that one? Mount Ararat, the place where Noah parked his ark, okay? That's a good way to remember that. And um, Mount uh, Moriah is called Mount Gerizim in the New Testament, it is where Jesus spoke with the woman at the well about what was the rightful place of worship. And many people believed it was at Mount Gerizim, and Jesus said it was at Mount Jerusalem. And we'll be looking at those mountains uh, in the future of our series. Now, our base camp for our climb is Genesis chapter 22, 1 through 2, a very uh, prominent scripture, which we're sure that you know. Let's flip that up on the board. Genesis 22, 1 through 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Perhaps the most famous example of a senior citizen nursing home delivery occurred when a 100-year-old centenarian named Abraham and his 90-year-old nonogenarian wife, postmenopausal, I might add, Sarah gave birth to a little boy that they named Laughter, or Isaac. Previously, and on multiple occasions, God had promised this elderly couple that they would bear children, and they would bear children in their old age but this seems to be stretching it just a little bit too far. This infant would, in fact, be the promised child, the flesh and blood embodiment of God's core covenantal promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 2, and reiterated for us in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. God promised Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. And then later on, he reiterated, look up into the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then God said to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. 
Have you ever heard the expression, good things come to those who wait? And so for over a 25-year period, Abraham and Sarah were waiting, and they were hoping, and they were praying, and they were practicing, until one day when God miraculously opened up Sarah's womb, and she conceived of this little, little boy. Now, imagine from that day forward, every moment, every moment was precious. Every moment was dear. Every moment was valuable. They thanked God each and every day for this bonus time, this miraculous time, this gravy time with a kid they thought they would never, ever have. They cherished each moment. And they marveled as he grew from an infant into a toddler, into a child, into a teenager, into a fine young man. Every day they thanked God as they watched his development intellectually, spiritually, and physically. And I'm sure that Abraham and Isaac did all the normal father-son things that we do with our kids, teaching him about God, about relationships, about life, and about work. Having a child in the later stages of life meant a great deal more energy from Abraham and Sarah, you could imagine, but it was a gift. It truly was a bonus, and it was nothing less than a miracle. And every day, I'm sure, that Abraham and Sarah woke up with Isaac in the household, they got down on their knees, and they thanked God for this precious gift of life, the embodiment of the promise of becoming a plentiful and a great people. So you can imagine, in the midst of all this joy, in the midst of all this thanksgiving, in the midst of all of this rejoicing, Abraham hears from God, and it is something I'm sure he never thought he would hear. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Take your son, your only son Isaac, to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Now this is amazing on the face of it. In fact, it is incredible. I have a son, I only have one son, and if God would have said that to me, I would have said things like, no way, Hosea. I would have said, no way wouldn't be prudent. I would object to it. I would have rebelled. I would say, if that's the kind of God you are, no thanks. I will go ahead and find another God. But we don't see that with Abraham. It's not recorded for us. The only thing we do see is that Abraham obeyed God. You see, over the years, he had learned the very valuable, the very precious, the very difficult lessons of faith and faithfulness. I mean, you have time in your devotional life. I want to encourage you to go ahead and just read about Abraham. Ten chapters of the Bible are dedicated to him in the book of Genesis. Just read from Genesis 12 to 22, and you'll see what I mean. He knew and he had learned, which we're all in the process of learning, 
that when it comes to our relationship with God, trust is a must. In fact, it doesn't work any other way. The thing that most glorifies God and most satisfies our soul is when we trust him wholly and fully with everything that we are and with everything that we had. Abraham knew instinctively that this trust must apply to everything and everybody and every circumstance in all times, even for the things that he loved, that he valued, that he cherished the most, even the person that God had given him in his life. He also remembered the story of Job. Who remembers Job, right? That poor old soul who lost everything, lost everything. He suffered greatly. He endured more than we could ever imagine. But somewhere along the journey, Job got to the place where I think it's a very good place for all of us to get to, where he said in Job chapter 121, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, as I asked in the first service this morning, who all loves it when God gives, right? When God lavishes, when God blesses, when God is always multiplying his benefits upon us. We revel in that. We delight in that. But when God takes, not so much, right? How many really sign up and say, God, just go ahead and take it all this morning? We normally don't do that, do we? And although Abraham doesn't always know the outcomes of what God is calling him to do, what God is calling him to be, where God is calling him to go, he does know that God is trustworthy no matter what. Now, I don't want to gloss over this. This is a big ask. It's probably the biggest ask that God will ever ask of Abraham. Could you imagine the agony of in his soul? I mean, Isaac is his one and only beloved son. Isaac is his future. Isaac is the one upon whom the promise of becoming a great people and a great nation, a plentiful people, truly rest. Isaac is his posterity. Isaac is his legacy. And so when you think about it, the turmoil that Abraham has here over this perplexing command is something hopefully none of us ever have to experience. But at the end of the day, Abraham relents. And he decides to take Isaac up the three-day march to the top of Mount Moriah. And as they are trekking up the mountain, a very precocious Isaac realizes that all the accoutrements of the sacrifice are accounted for except one piece, one central piece. And that is the sacrifice itself. It is conspicuously absent. And so in a moment of inquiry, Isaac asks his daddy, his papa, 
Papa, where is the sacrifice? Now Abraham responds with, I think, we should all respond to. Anytime we have need or lack or doubt or questions in our hearts, Abraham responds with such the assurance of faith, which is why he is known in three different world religions as the father of faith. He merely responds as a matter of factly that God will provide one. Wouldn't it be great if we had that kind of assurance each and every day that we live? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had that God-centeredness of life and that total trust that no matter what we have to go through, no matter what we need, we can say, no worries, God will provide. So as they finish their three-day climb to the top of Mount Moriah, Abraham gets busy constructing the sacrificial site, the altar itself. Now the question of the missing sacrifice is still very much on the top of Isaac's mind. I'm sure he's thinking, is God going to provide one out of nothing? I even have seen it myself, where in fact, God has provided things at the last moment. How many know that when God makes us a promise, he doesn't always, always give it to us immediately or instantaneously or the second that we ask. How many do you know that, right? Now, I often wondered that. Now, remember, this is the God who said not to worry about our lives, that we are in the palm of his hand, that he would never leave or forsake us, and that nothing would ever separate us from his love. And so why, God, then, don't you provide for us exactly when we need the provision. There's really two reasons for that that I can ascertain. And the first reason is, is simply that God wants to stretch our faith. How I many do you know that? That's what this world is all about. It is about stretching our faith where it can withstand and endure anything that life throws at us. And the second reason is God really doesn't want to create a bunch of spoiled brats, right? like little two-year-olds or teenagers or whatever, who want what they want and they want it now. God wants to develop in us a Christ-like character and a strong faith that will survive anything this world has uh, to throw at us. And so I'm sure Isaac himself is starting to worry about when this sacrifice is going to show up. And as he is thinking about this, as these kinds of theological thoughts are swirling through his mind, his train of thought is interrupted when his father takes him, puts him on the altar, and ties him to the altar. The big reveal is, oh my goodness, God has provided the sacrifice. Oh, I'm the sacrifice. Oh, that really stinks. Wow. So before he can fathom what's going on, Abraham goes ahead and he is ready with every ounce of belief and trust and faith that he has. He's ready to sacrifice his only son. 
He unsheathes the razor-sharp knife. He raises it to heaven. Heaven's watching. Earth stops. Isaac closes his eyes, ready to meet his maker. It is at that point, before he can initiate the fatal blow, Abraham hears God, and here's what God says to him. In Genesis 22:12, do not lay your hand on that boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. And the good word there is trust God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now at the very moment of that command, Abraham hears a thrashing going on in the underbrush. He looks over, and it is a ram that's caught or entangled or ensnared there. He runs over, he pounces on it, he slays it, and he immediately offers it as the sacrifice. Amazed by this ram that seemingly came out of nowhere, Abraham entitles the circumstance, entitles the mountain, and entitles God this. Jehovah Jireh. God who provides. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Now one can imagine the relief that flooded over Abraham's soul. I imagine him saying, God, I knew you'd come through. You always came through in the past. I knew you would come through now. You always do. Let me believe that, by the way, that God always comes through. God always delivers on his promise. And when we run over to Paul's understanding of the Mount Moriah event, he says that true faith, the faith of Abraham, is to believe that God is both willing and able to do what he has promised. Now that's pretty tough, isn't it? I'm sure we all believe that God is all-powerful and God can do what he wants. But is he willing to deliver on his promises towards us? We believe that he's able. Maybe he doesn't want to. We're not sure. But the true faith that Abraham displayed believes that God is both willing and able to do exactly what he has promised. Now, there is a doctrine. It is my favorite doctrine uh, doctrine is just a body of teaching that's um, called the all-sufficiency of Christ. It's my favorite doctrine and my favorite title for a doctrine, the all-sufficiency of Christ. Now, the all-sufficiency of Christ speaks to the fact that we can trust God for everything in life, not just for spiritual things, not just for salvation, but for all things, things that are material, things that are physical, things that are relational. We can trust him for everything, everything that we need in this world. This is why we entitle Christ with being our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. Now, there are many scriptures that underscore and undergird the doctrine of the all-sufficiency of Christ. Who remembers Philippians 4.19? My God shall supply 
all of your needs according to his riches in glory. How many of you are glad that that did not read, my God will supply all of your needs according to your riches on earth. Amen? But your, his riches in glory. And then 2 Peter 1.3 is a fantastic scripture. Please memorize it. God has provided for us all things for spiritual and physical life. And who can remember the very first line of the great shepherd psalm, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. How many know that God really loves to take care of us? He loves being our redeemer and also our sustainer. And so hopefully we see or believe the way Abraham did. He first saw the all-sufficient Christ when that ram showed up in that thicket, when he mysteriously appeared in the underbrush. And hopefully, hopefully, we can see God's provisions in our lives, even when we can't see it through our own physical eyes. Hopefully, we believe that God will meet our needs when our needs need met. Now, let me know, though, that this same trust is necessary, just not to receive from God, but to also sacrifice for God. You see, Mount Moriah is not only the mountain of provision, it is also the mountain of sacrifice. Whereas God calls us at times to sacrifice the very things that he has provided us with. Now, how many know that's a core gospel teaching? Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, they must deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow him. Now, this is what Abraham saw. Even though he had waited for 25 years for the promise, even though everything was on the line and everything was at stake, with Isaac, his only son that he loved. God wanted him to see that, listen, that, listen, I am calling you to sacrifice the very things that I have blessed you with. Now, this goes back to what we saw in Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes it away. But we need to believe this morning that when God calls us to sacrifice, that any sacrifice he asks us to make, whether it's our time, our talent, or our treasure, whether it's all of that together, that the sacrifices that we make are never greater than the provision that God gives to each and every one of us. Amen. The sacrifices that he calls us to make will never, 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 never outlast the provision, the eternal provisions that he has given us through the all-sufficient Christ. That his provisions will always be greater than our sacrifice. And this is the kind of faith, this is the kind of faith we have to have. When we roll over to the New Testament, and we get the Hebrew writer's perspective on Mount Moriah about Abraham's great faith and willing to uh, sacrifice Isaac. 
We are told in Hebrews 11:19 that Abraham had this confidence that even if God allowed him to go through with the sacrifice, it didn't matter because God was going to resurrect Isaac and the promise would have continued. Let me know that God always will or re resurrect our sacrifices that we make in his name for his glory and on behalf of others. Let me believe that this morning. Because you know what? Having a faith that says I only receive from God, yeah, that's not a very healthy faith. That's not a very good faith that's going to get you growing in Christ, a loving God and loving others equally. That's not the kind of faith that's going to enable you to overcome what the challenges of this world really, really are. And so I'm going to ask you a question this morning. What do you need to march up on the other side of Mount Moriah and put on the altar of God. What do you have to do? Something you're holding on to dearly, something you're loving, or something you're trusting more than you are God himself. What is he calling you to put upon the altar and to trust him that no matter what you sacrifice, his provision are far greater than the sacrifices that you have to make and that I have to make? For the great, great promise of the scripture is it simply that Mount Moriah might be the place of sacrifice. But if we do sacrifice, God himself will transform it into the mount of provision, the mountains of provision. And so when we obey God and when we trust God, you know what happens? We come down the other side of the mountain stronger in our faith which is the point of all God's testing in our lives. And we will experience an, the abundance of God, knowing him better, doing more for his glory, more for others, once we understand that we'll, our sacrifices will never, ever, ever exhaust God's provision in our lives. Now, I know this is sometimes hard to reconcile, but we know we have this promise. When we go back to what God had promised Abraham, that he would become a great nation. And then when God reiterated that in Genesis 15, 5, where he says, I will make your, your offspring as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And if you can go out and count all those stars, you're kind of getting the number. But after this sacrifice, or this attempted sacrifice uh, of Isaac, and then the ram. We're told in Genesis 22, 17, that God adds another layer to the promise. And that is, he says, not only the stars in the sky, but also the sands on the beach. That's how numerous. That's how plentiful. That's how great. That's how great your people will be. That's how great your life will be once you trust Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides abundantly and infinitely and joyfully for his people. This is the God that we discover on 
Mount Moriah. This is the God that the church acknowledges and prays and worships and adores and loves and serves. And like I like to tell a lot of people, if you can find a better God than this, I'll switch. Will you pray with me? Good and gracious God, we come to you. And I know it's hard for us. Faith is not easy. In fact, many times it's just a sheer gift given down from heaven. But we do know, we do know that the point of our existence on this side of eternity is to grow in our love for you and to grow in our faith of you. And so God, will you help us see that of all the things that you have provided, of all the things you have given, of all the things that you have blessed us with, that at any moment you might ask us to give those back to you. Will you give us the faith that sees, that we can obey, that we can trust and obey? And when we do, you will give us even more than we imagined, hoped, or even thought about. Because you are a good God. You know what you're doing with us, and we trust you.